Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, Read Smart listeners. Welcome back to the official podcast for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, which, as you know, aims to promote the very best in nonfiction writing. I'm Razia Iqbal, your host, and I have just returned from a visiting professorship at Princeton. My thanks to Shahida Bari, who has sat in for me while I've been away. Now, today we're talking about the political biography, whether it's Churchill or Chamberlain, Blair or Boris Johnson. Readers have long been fascinated by the inner lives of those who walk the corridors of power. I'm delighted to welcome Sonia Purnell, who has written biographies of Boris Johnson and Clementine Churchill, alongside John Rental, chief political commentator for The Independent newspaper and author of a number of books on Tony Blair and New Labour. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Let's start by getting both of you to just outline for us what you think makes a great political biography. Sonia, let's start with you. Well, I, I think it's 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 answering a mystery, really. I mean, why do people go into politics? A lot of people ask that question because it's it doesn't look that much fun. It's not particularly well paid. The hours are awful, and everyone is rude about you. But I think you know when you look at why people do it, there are quite often some really obvious reasons, but only if you look right back into their life, um, back to their childhood, into their marriages, the way that they sort of behave in private life. And that gives you a really interesting insight into why they behaved the way that they did, if it's in historical biography, or why they continue to behave the way that they do if, if it's contemporary one. And why is that important? Well, you know, with contemporary ones particularly, you know, is, is this the sort of person that you want to run your country? What might they do if they do run your country? And with the historical ones, you can look at why did they make those decisions? Why did they always get up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, seven days a week and work extraordinary hours? And I think, you know, I think it really helps us understand ourselves and our country. I mean, ideally, I'd like to think that it it might help us sort of vote better in the future, but maybe that is a bit idealistic. But I, I think the political biography is still a real kind of, it's an important thing, um, even though actually in recent years we've, we've started considering politics as sort of a, 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 a branch of entertainment, but that in itself is worthy of uh, a political biography and something that I try to cover in in Just Boris. So there are lots and lots of things, I think, that that we can find useful from a political biography, even for those people who aren't particularly interested in politics. John Rental, do do you agree that that, that it's that kind of trying to pull the veil back from the the, the mystery, if you like, that that Sonia refers to? Because you're both journalists, and I just wonder the, the, the need as well to reveal something that we don't or we didn't know before, how much that plays a part in a political biography. Yeah, it's about trying to understand uh, the person. And obviously, as a political journalist, uh, I'm reporting on politicians all the time. Uh, But the bits of uh, political biographies that I always find interesting uh, are the early lives, the childhood uh, and the family life, the family story. Uh, And, you know, Sonia and I have both dealt with politicians who've had very interesting uh, upbringings. I mean, Boris Johnson's childhood was uh, was extraordinary. You know, his mother had a had a breakdown. Uh, His parents were divorced. Uh, But Tony Blair's was 
I mean, not quite as traumatic, but his father had a stroke when Tony Blair was 11. Uh, And it's a very common pattern in politicians that you get uh, uh, intense ambition instilled into a young person uh, when their father or their mother has a crisis uh, at at that kind of formative age, and it happened to it happened to Boris Johnson, and it happened to to, to Tony Blair as well. I, I feel like we're getting way ahead of ourselves in getting into the detail of of the two subjects that you are both most familiar with. But but let's let's jump right in with with the biography of Boris Johnson, Sonia, um, that you wrote. I mean, we are recording this and talking about political biography at a time of the twilight, if you like, of Boris Johnson's. Um, Premiership. Maybe. How hard? What I mean? How how hard is it, Sonia? For or how hard was it for you to penetrate the persona that we are so familiar with of of Boris Johnson? Well, in a way, which is comparatively easy, because people couldn't wait to talk about Boris Johnson. I mean, the number of trains and appointments I missed because they wanted to go on talking about Boris Johnson was really quite extraordinary. (laughs) I mean, there were so many people. I spoke to over 200 people, I think it was. Um, And they all had some sort of nugget to put into my mosaic, you know, to try and work out what it was in his childhood. And I think there were a lot of things, you know, strands there. Yes, I mean, John is absolutely right to mention what happened with his mother, that she was very unwell, had terrible depression, was away in hospital a lot. His fa- they got divorced. His father had many, many different girlfriends and mistresses and goodness knows what. The, the children, Boris being the oldest, or Al as they called him, of four at that point, I mean, they were left to their own devices at an extraordinarily young age. Uh, Boris and Rachel crossing the channel by themselves to go to school from Brussels to, to Britain when they were age 10 and 11, you know, just extraordinary. Um, and there was this sort of the res- resilience. There's also this kind of this loneliness, you know, not really making that many other human attachments, not really being part of a community, always being slightly different, but driven by this extraordinary competitive urge that Stanley instilled in all of them. I think partly because, you know, Stanley's family, his heritage, Turkish, used to be a very, very important family in Turkey, politically now not so important. He wanted to recreate this kind of dynasty and he course he saw Boris as the the person to do that so it was always about coming first second would never do but coming first you know meant that sort of lesser beings fell under your wheels as it were and I think all of those things that kind of strange loneliness of Boris Johnson the person who can please a crowd but finds it difficult one-to-one or two-to-one I think all comes from that childhood and also that lack of feeling of being part of a community not being a team player Again, you know, very isolated childhood. So lots of intriguing stuff. And John is quite right to say that these things are important. And all sorts of people wanted to talk to me about this because from a very early age, they thought he is a very, very unusual person. I wonder also, I mean, one, among the many things I learned from your biography, Sonia, was was the influence of his mother for all of the trauma uh, and, and the uh, big personality of Stanley Johnson. His mother did inform how he should be. I love that line in, in your book where, where she says, you know, it's nice to be important, but it's important to be nice. Yes. I mean, uh, that's right. I, mean, I think Charlotte was the sort of the great civilizing influence, but I think it was very 
very hard for her and she wasn't perhaps a strong enough character to deal with the sort of blood sport that it is of being a Johnson. So I think those kind of Johnsonian traits in 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 Boris are, are, are stronger, unfortunately, you might say, than the ones that he inherited from his mother, although he does have a, an artistic side and that, that did come from her. And I've always loved that line, but I wonder how often he says that to himself now. I'd like to think that he does, but um, I, I wonder... Let's let's talk about uh, John Rentoul about about knowing the person before you've written the biography. So you have had a long-standing uh, interest in the new Labour project. I, I wonder how 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 important it is to be informed not just about the politics but also be an insider, if you like, in inverted commas. Well, I don't feel that I was an insider. I mean, I was obviously. Um, I mean, I used to be active in the Labour Party and I used to be a supporter of um, what we like to call the modernisers. Um, but I never knew Tony Blair well until I you know, worked with him when I was at the BBC. I made a film about him and I was really and it was just at the time in 1992 when he uh, when, when he suddenly got television and he was able he suddenly became the best communicator on television, which is, of course, the most important medium uh, still. Um, he just suddenly became the best communicator on television in British politics. And, you know, in many ways, he hasn't been matched since. Um, but I wasn't particularly close to him. And I, I do remember the feeling of um, embarrassment when I'd written the first um, uh, biography of him. Um, and I'd, I'd met him to, to discuss it and to go through it with him. And um, he presented me with this copy, which he'd annotated in the margins of all sorts of comments, <laughs> uh, one of which was crap, I remember. Um, and I just, re- I just suddenly felt that I'd been incredibly arrogant to, uh, to, to write about somebody else's life and to intrude into all their personal uh, spaces. Um, and without actually knowing him, and yet he he tolerated it. So I give him some some marks for that. Uh, Sonia, you also worked alongside Boris Johnson as a journalist in Brussels. I mean, to what extent did that pique your interest at that time? Thinking, well, this is an extraordinary individual, and I, one day I probably will write a biography about him. Um, well, he, I did. You're absolutely right. I mean, I was his deputy in Brussels, and I did think he was an extraordinary individual. But I never thought I'd end up writing a biography about him. That was very much someone else's idea, and suddenly I found myself doing it. I mean, I suppose the thing was that I saw a side of Boris Johnson that people hadn't seen before. We were working in an office of two. Um, we were working very long hours. Um, at the time, everyone thought he was this sort of cuddly bare, shambling, shambolic buffoon. But working alongside him, I realised that he was absolutely not. He was the most focused and ruthless and ambitious person I'd ever met. So I always had this in my head. And um, and then when he started sort of climbing the greasy pole of politics, I, you know, at dinner parties, people used to say, oh, well, you know, you used to work with Boris Johnson, you know, tell us a story or two. So I did. And I'd be sort of, you know, <laughs> open mouths at my stories and then someone said famously Sonia write a book about this but I said well yeah but it shouldn't be about what I know I, I will need to speak to lots of other people which I did you know like I say over 200 of them and then I sort of realized that in a sense what I had observed was part of a pattern 
in his life, uh, which you know goes right up to the the current day. So um, I, I, it, it really was someone else's idea, and I did contact him and said, "Look, you know." Boris, I'm going to write about you. And he said, okay, well, if you get a deal, um, let's have lunch. So I, I phoned him back sometime later and said, right, um, you know, I've got, I've got a publishing deal now, Boris. And and the lunch never happened. Uh, <laughs> I tried, you know, I wasn't all that surprised. Um, I, I tried several times and sent him a copy at the end and all the rest of it. And it wasn't until I saw him sometime later, he came up to me and said, uh, you know, good on you, Sonia, which is all, what he always called me, and then said, I should have bought you that lunch, shouldn't I? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, don't think it would have affected the outcome that much. But yeah, you did promise me a lunch, but we still never had the lunch. I'm still waiting. Really interesting. I mean, John Rental, you, you know, you, you speak about Tony Blair as, you know, as a, an, a brilliant communicator and actually unmatched since the time he first came onto the scene. Having written so much about him, do, do you think that you've come to admire him more or less? Oh, I think um, more. I, I think I've undergone the opposite trajectory from the uh, the rest of the country because I was you know, I was really intrigued by him um, early on, and obviously I supported his his, his general approach in the Labour Party. Um, but I I did think he was a he was a bit bland and um, unspecific, um, and uh, I I thought there wasn't much to him. Um, but he was he was a brilliant politician. Uh, whereas the longer I worked on him and, and and wrote about him, the more I came to admire him, and I, the more depth I thought there was. To him, and I think in particular. I mean, I hope if if people take one thing away from uh, from the books I've written about him, I hope it's that they realise that you know this this portrayal of him as the sort of shallow uh, show pony, the front person uh, to a serious operation run by Gordon Brown, uh, is completely wrong. It's absolutely the other way round. I mean, Tony Blair was a much more serious political thinker, and Gordon Brown was a much more uh, superficial um, PR person. I mean, given, let's stay with you, John, for a moment, because given the kind of political colossus that he was, three election victories, you know, two with enormous majorities, it, it, it is the case that currently he's not perhaps disowned by the majority of the party, but, but to be a Blairite is, is a bit of an insult. And I, I, I want to really talk about the way in which reputations evolve over time. Do you feel, John, that, that you know, the true assessment of Tony Blair in terms of how you have viewed him is is yet to emerge as a kind of consensus view. Um, well, you you mean people people have yet to come to the to the right uh, Rentoulian interpretation of history. Exactly, that's what I mean. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely that is absolutely the case. And I I had hoped that uh, we would have made more progress in that direction, but I'm I'm afraid I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, what it is quite heartening that the Labour Party is now uh, not uh, an anti Blairite. Organization in the way that it was. I mean, what's extraordinary about the um, party membership is that they admire Tony Blair as, as much as they admire Jeremy Corbyn, which is a very strange uh, combination in in my in my worldview. Um, but no, I don't. I, I, one of the great disappointments of having written Tony Blair's biography is that I don't think um, history will rehabilitate rehabilitate him. I mean, I think I, th- I think it, it will to a certain extent. I think there's much more interest in in what he got right uh, now. But I think uh, people will always have a very negative view of him. 
and, and Sonia, what do you? I mean, maybe it's too early to 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 to, to talk about Boris Johnson in terms of um, history. I mean, he is still prime minister and won't step down until September the fifth um, in that role. But I, I just wonder what you think about the the contribution that he has made to the way in which we think about prime ministers you know you can you can argue as you have that you know he has descended into shame and disgrace despite his his considerable gifts but i i just wonder how you think history will judge this man well, that's, I mean, I think it is a little bit early to say, and I'm not totally sure that we're not going to see him again as prime minister, by the way. I wouldn't totally rule that out. But history will... Like, <laughs> you would, John. You think that's it. He's toast. You don't get... You, you don't. I mean, it used to be the norm that you would, that prime ministers would get a second term in the, in, in the 19th century, but I, I just don't think politics is like that anymore. It isn't, but then we've never had a Boris Johnson before. No, that is true. Um, he's broken lots of other moulds, so I'm still waiting for him to break a few more. You know, I, I don't think we're out of that yet. Um, so, I mean, history will judge him, but history will say, yep, OK, so he delivered Brexit. And then history will look at, you know, how successful was that economically, socially, um, internationally, and all the rest of it. I think that that will be a very hard read for him unless he writes it of course you know Churchill said well you, when someone said how will history treat you Mr Churchill and he said well it'll be fine because I'm going to write it and I think you know there may be <laughs> an element of that with Boris Johnson as well but you know it's interesting how how views have changed already I can tell you when I wrote that book first came out in 2011 updated um, a bit in 2012 it was like tumbleweed out there. I was the only person who said, hello, everyone. I'm not sure about this guy. I have my, you know, <laughs> clear reservations. Hello. And everyone just kind of said, yeah, bye, Sonia. Yeah, fine. Uh, off you go. And then now all sorts of people who sort of, you know, uh, kind of thought I was completely crazy at the time say, well, um, yeah, we should have listened to you. So, I mean, that's quite nice. But I, I think, though, that ultimately, I think the Office of Prime Minister is going to be difficult to rebuild. I think the way that our politics is set up is going to have to change. I think that, you know, we don't have a written constitution. You can argue whether or not that's the right way to proceed. But what we don't have, though, are sufficient checks and balances on a prime minister that does not obey the rules. I mean, nothing really has contained Boris Johnson. And if we don't want to have that again, then we need to look at how we might contain a, you know, what but some Sonia, he's, he's not prime minister anymore. He's not prime minister anymore. The system, the, the, the checks and balances have have worked, and they've crushed him. Yes, but it took a very long time, and we don't know that we're not about to go through a sort of repeat process. And it took a long time, and it wasn't in the end. I mean, you know, it wasn't the checks and balances. It was a kind of a bunch of MPs starting to get worried about losing their seat. Well, you might say, well, that is a check and balance. That's the ultimate check and balance. You know, but, you know, did the Supreme Court work in the way it should have done? Did the civil service work in the way that should have done? Did all the various kind of police and, you know, law enforcement agencies, did they work in the way that they, they should have done? You know, I think there are big questions about that, and I think that we need to answer them, and we also need to answer, you know, you know, does the United Kingdom work in the way that it's set up anymore? Is it right that England basically, you know, came up with Brexit against the will 
of Scotland against the will of Northern Ireland. Is, is there something that if we're going to keep a, a union going that we need to kind of fix there and come up with some kind of new system? I think, you know, more than at any other time in my lifetime, all of these questions are up there to be answered. It doesn't look like they're going to be answered anytime soon, but I don't think that means that they're going to go away. Well, let, let me let me ask both of you. I mean, Sonia, you brought up the issue of the office of prime minister. I mean, given how uh, degraded it has been by Boris Johnson, you know, the idea that of truth and integrity not being not playing a part really at all. I just wonder about the kinds of questions, you know, let, let's go to you, John, that you would want to see answered, given the degradation of the office under Boris Johnson. Well, I mean, it's not I mean, I'm I, I'm a supporter of Tony Blair, so it's not for me to defend Boris Johnson. But I think you're, I think you're being a bit harsh, and I think Sonia's being a bit harsh. I think, um, uh, you know, the, the point about Boris Johnson is that, you know, yes, he pushed at the boundaries, but in the end, the Supreme Court ruled against him, and uh, that was the end of that. And in the end, he pushed the boundaries so far that he ended up being a, a failure as a prime minister. I mean, three years as a prime minister, especially for some, for one. Who seemed so brilliant uh, briefly uh, as to win a and had won the majority that he did. It was extraordinary. That majority and then throw it away in such a short space of time suggests that uh, you know he really he, he really didn't make the office of prime minister work very well. Um, whereas someone like Tony Blair was was there for ten years and could have been there for in in my view could and should have been there for longer. Um, but I don't. I don't think that's a fundamental failing. Failing of the office of prime minister or of the British constitution. I think it's a. It's a political failure of Boris Johnson, who turned out not to. You know, as Sonia said, you know, she she spotted that he had deep, deep flaws, uh, and that was the the huge value of of, of her biography. Let's talk about something that you uh, dropped into the conversation, I think, in your first answer, Sonia, when you talked about, you know, the relationship between politics and entertainment. I mean, given how much we uh, now have to acknowledge that politics becomes more entwined with with celebrity than ever, how does that affect the task of a biographer? I mean, I'm thinking of Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury, one of, you know, the, one of the biggest selling books about the Trump presidency really contained virtually nothing in the way of policy or trying to understand uh, what had gone on, but lots of in- just incredible gossip. Yes, I mean, I think that is the way that, that politics is going. And I remember, you know, when I was researching the book, um, talking to, I think it was Brian Paddock, who was then the Lib Dem mayoral candidate in London. Um, I think it was him who said, look, you know, when I go and knock on doors and, um, you know, I don't necessarily get a great reaction, but what people say is, oh, you know, I'm going to vote for Boris. And he said, you know, well, why is that? He makes me laugh. You know, so people were voting for him because he made them laugh. And it it just it struck me, this is sort of the X factoring of, of politics, isn't it? It's not that because he's going to make the economy better or my kids are going to get a better school or I'm going to be able to go on holiday more cheaply. It was that he's going to make me laugh. And I think with Trump, with, with Johnson, you know, very much kind of in a sort of, you know, a category of their own, that the entertainment was huge. And that was why it was so difficult for someone else to say, well, you know, this policy isn't very good because we're going to end up with, you know, soaring inflation or or labour shortage, whatever. Everyone said, oh, go away, you're boring. You know, um, Boris is making me laugh. And 
it, it's a very dangerous thing because, of course, politics should have a little bit of showbiz, you know, don't bore people deliberately. But on the other hand, all our lives depend on it. And, you know, actually we could do with someone being quite seriously boring or boringly serious or, or both uh, because th- this is where the, the state of the nation today is what happens if you treat politics as entertainment. And I actually think, you know, it, it's taken us to a quite dark place. John, what do you think? I mean, Tony Blair was was definitely had showbiz about him, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do think, you know, he he was, I mean, he wasn't a, you know, he he wouldn't have been on Have I Got News for You. He, you know, he wasn't he wasn't very funny in that in that sense. His jokes were 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 often a bit subtle. Um, he was a show, <laughs> or just bad, John. <laughs> well, all bad, yeah. No, but. I mean, politics is showbiz and always has been, actually. I mean, you know, Harold Macmillan was a great uh, showman. I mean, Winston Churchill was a, was a showman. I mean, it, Boris, the, the thing about Boris is that he didn't have the substance to back it up. I mean, so, yes, he made people laugh and he made people feel good about themselves. He made feel, people feel good about the country. Um, and that's what Tony Blair was good at as well. I mean, he just sort of conveyed a sense that the country was was going places. It was young and it was modernising and it was changing in a positive way. Um, but he had policies to back it up, whereas Boris Boris Johnson only had Brexit, really. And once he delivered Brexit, he didn't have anything anything else. And Brexit, of course, as, as you point out, was an extremely divisive um, uh, offering. Uh, so I think that was where Boris's um, entertainment value um, fell down. I mean, I don't think it's. I don't. I don't think it's that. Polit- I mean, maybe politics has become coarser, but I don't think that uh, being a, a an entertainer, being making people feel good about themselves, is necessarily a bad thing. I want to stay with um, the United States and and just get both of you really to reflect on um, the. The differences in uh, writing political biographies in in the US and and here. I mean, how how much do both of you read political biographies um, in in the US? Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the ones that have kind of established extraordinary reputations for themselves, like Robert Cara's yeah. uh, multi volume life it's of Lyndon longer. Johnson. <laughs> it's much longer, and it's got much longer sentences with those huge <laughs> long m dashes uh, in them. Um, but it is, I mean, the Caro in particular is, is, is magnificent, but I've got a lot of uh, American, uh, biographies on my bookshelf behind me. They do tend to be longer than, uh, than the British equivalent. Sonia, what about you? Do you, do you read American political biographies? Um, a little. I haven't read the Robert Caro on, on Lynn Johnson, but I have read a lot about the, the Kennedys, the Roosevelts and, Bill Clinton, um, mostly actually, uh, I have to admit, for research from my more recent books where what they did and um, <clears throat> how they were as politicians came in very useful. And But I'm sort of interested always in, in what motivates politicians, why they get up early and, and work those long hours and do all those things. And, and I, there are a lot of very good books about the Kennedys, a lot of very good books about the Roosevelts, including Eleanor Roosevelt, who's you know fascinating figure. I mean, that's something else that we should mention actually, because 
you know, when I was writing about Clementine Churchill, um, there was very much the sort of traditional view was that, that she wasn't actually a big figure. She wasn't really that important. She was rather shrewish and all the rest of it. But the more I dug into that story, the more I realized, oh, my goodness, you know, you really did get two Churchills for the price of one. She was editing his speeches. She was helping him with cabinet appointments. She sometimes took Atlee's side against him, by the way, if she didn't agree with what Churchill was doing. Um, she was the only one sometimes who had the guts to go and argue with him when she thought he'd got something wrong, such as actually when he backed the exiled king in Greece for, uh, at the end of the war. And yet, you know, I, m- I remember reading these um, political biographies, you know, where she's ba- basically not mentioned as one called The Greatest Britain on Mars, which, and she's not mentioned once in the index, and that's 800 pages. And it's interesting with FDR um, that Eleanor Roosevelt, who probably wasn't as influential on him, actually, again, doesn't necessarily get that sort of um, the, the, the prominence that, that she really deserves because she she did have um, you know a big part to play. So I'm also interested in, in how the women fit in on both sides of the Atlantic and it's been very intriguing actually to compare Clementine Churchill with Eleanor Roosevelt, similar in some ways and hugely different um, in others. So I've sort of really looked at things from from that point of view. That that is really interesting. I mean, I in in the context of you know Caro's multi-volume life of Lyndon Johnson. I mean, I I wonder to what extent we could say that Charles Moore's three volumes on Margaret Thatcher stand up against something like that. I mean, I've only read the first volume of the Moore, and 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 I'm intrigued by it because, of course, it was an authorized biography. I mean, she approved of Charles Moore writing this book, John. Yeah, no, and uh, I mean it. It really does stand comparison with the Caro, I think, but. I mean, mainly because uh, Charles Moore did have access to uh, papers and, and, and people that nobody else had spoken to. I mean, the letters, I mean, uh, you know, the letters between um, uh, Margaret and her sister uh, are a real uh, goldmine for a, for a biographer. Um, but he, but I mean, the thing about Charles Moore is he, can, he, he also writes extremely well um, and he's just done such a fantastically thorough job. I mean, it's a joy to read. But it also enlightens us as to Margaret Thatcher's extraordinary character. In, indeed. Uh, Sonia, have you read uh, any of the Charles Moore? Um, I haven't, <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid, and, and I feel very bad about that because um, I, I, I would like to very much read that. I'd also like to read a sort of slightly different biography of Margaret Thatcher, you know, perhaps not the authorised version, but I quite like to read a feminist take on, on Margaret Thatcher because whether or not you agree with her policies and what she did and how she changed Britain, um, it was an extraordinary achievement from a sort of feminist point of view. I mean, she really had to battle that and I don't think she ever called herself a, a, a feminist. So I think what always intrigues me, you know, someone like Churchill, someone like Roosevelt, um, Lyndon Johnson, I'm sure, as well, the Kennedys, there's always a new angle. You know, there's always a new way of looking at these historic great figures that tells us something new. And I and um, I don't want to take anything away from Charles Moore's work because I hear absolutely great things at all points. But I always think there's, there is something, there are different ways to look at these characters that might tell us a little bit more. Sounds like you're carving out your next book, Sonia. Uh, <laughs> not sure about that, but anyway, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, let, let's talk about how how hard it is. Um, and, and this one's really for you, John, because you are um, 
such a supporter of New Labour and Tony Blair's project. I mean, how hard is it to um, to to not to, to try and be as objective as you can, as well as being informed by the fact that you are supportive of this project? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably what um, distinguishes uh, me from from Sonia. She's um, she's much more critical about about Boris than I am about uh, Tony Blair. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm completely open that I'm a, that, that I'm a Blairite in my in, in my politics. I mean, I've you know I've criticised uh, Tony Blair on all sorts of things, and I don't agree with him on everything. Um, but I think that uh, the general assessment of him is um, is wrong, and I think people are far too uh, hostile because of Iraq, which I accept uh, was a mistake, didn't go well. Uh, but it was undertaken for the best of reasons, and I think um, it's important to try and explain that. And I think, you know, as long as I'm honest about my uh, my affiliations, if you can call them that, I think I am as objective as you can be uh, in uh, in assessing the history of that period. Sonia, what do you think about those kind of trade offs and challenges that 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 come with what informs the writer and the the writer's perspective? Yeah, there are trade-offs. And so, I mean, I had certain views of Boris Johnson after having worked with him, but I didn't want it to be about what I thought, obviously, So, which is why I tracked down and talked to so many other people. I thought that was, was really necessary. And I've always made it clear, look, you know, working with him was not my happiest moment. And I, you know, I've always said that, but I was perfectly open to being persuaded that, um, you know, because it didn't matter, I was one person, that that was just, if that was a one-off, then that was what it was. And there were lots of other um, wonderful traits that completely would, you know, counter that. I mean, what surprised me, actually, shocked me, was when I was talking to to these 200 people, I I wasn't the only one who'd been treated that way. um, And that there was a definite pattern of, of behavior. And I, I remember um, having a coffee with Anne McElvoy, the economist, and talking to her about him because they were at university together. And just out of the blue, she said, Sonia, you're quite disturbed by what you're finding, aren't you? I said, well, how do you know? And she said, it's just written all over your face. You look quite shocked. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I am quite shocked. Um, and, you know, but I, I didn't, I, that wasn't on my agenda at all. My agenda was, okay, I didn't have a great time, but, you know, very interesting person. Let's find out more about him. And then what I found out did did shock me, I have to admit. And But it, I didn't start off that way. It, it sort of emerged gradually. <laughs> when we were talking a little earlier about, uh, you know, what history is going to make of, of a figure um, such as Boris Johnson, and, and you alluded to the fact that, you know, perhaps he will write his own memoir. We've talked a lot about uh, biographies. We haven't really said much about the political memoir, of, of, of which there are so many. Um, Sonia, let's stay with you. How, how reliable are the political memoirs that you've read? And, and can you just give us some examples? Well, funny enough, um, my father appears in one of the Tony Benn uh, memoirs because my, my dad was a, a civil servant at the time. And, uh, I, I, you know, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. But I remember before he left left us, he said that nothing in that, in that entry is true. Um, I didn't say that. <laughs> 
say that. Um, and uh, so I've always been slightly suspicious of that of political memoirs ever since, because of course all politicians want to justify themselves and make everything sound as good as it can possibly be. So I always take them with a little bit of. Of a pinch of salt. Not to say that, you know, I don't read them avidly quite often, but, um, you know, I, I always bear that story in mind when I do. Uh, John, John Rental, what about you? I mean, I, I'm thinking in particular of um, of the kind of authenticity of Alan Johnson's memoir, which of course won won the Orwell Prize not that long ago. Yes, and beautiful, beautifully written, um, but you can, and the completely different sort of authenticity from uh, from Tony Blair's, which is. Uh, you know, obviously needed a a good editor, but he's absolutely fascinating. I think in in really, uh, dis, you know, sort of exposing um, his thoughts to the world in a in a very credible way, which is why I think it's such an interesting book. But I mean, Sonia and I have both had that experience. I mean, because doing interviews for a biography is is very much like reading the memoirs, because you you know you get people telling you. All sorts of stories, which you then you then re- retail to the next interviewee, who says, "No, it didn't happen like that at all. It was completely different." And you you realise that some are, some some witnesses are more reliable than than others. I mean, I won't name names, but I mean, you do. That's part of the biographer's job is to such a shame that you won't name names. Well, it's right, just I'm, getting juicy. Well, Roy, Hatt- Roy Hattersley told me some some absolutely wonderful stories about Tony Blair's early career, which turned out to be. Um, not quite well embellished shall we say yeah embellished um, okay well, let, well let's well let's end with getting both of you to um give us some recommendations of either memoirs or political biographies that you you would encourage people to to read sonia well okay so it it comes over as light-hearted but actually i think it tells you a lot it's very recent and it's the sasha swire diaries um I, you know, some people said, oh, they're just, you know, light and trite. But but actually, I, I think they shed a light on our current ruling class, which is, I, I don't know whether she realised quite, quite how damning and revealing they are. But um, I, I would recommend anyone to to read them. I mean, the, the snobbery, the sort of the incestuousness, the unseriousness um of that particular clique that we've had in charge for the last 10 years or so. I, I It's just extraordinary. I mean, I, it just kind of, you know, blew my socks off really when I was was reading it and um, she... So, kind of, so this, is, this is Diary of an MP's Wife by Sasha it. Swire. Yeah. Uh, John, what about you? Well, I would always recommend uh, Alice Campbell's diaries. I mean, they're fantastically long Um but they are very thorough, and you know, talking of um, witnesses that you can you can trust, I think I think his his diaries, which are always written, you know, at night the same day. Well, I mean, not always the same day, but I mean, almost always the same day. They are a fantastic con- contemporaneous record of what actually happened now at the heart of government for the ten years. I mean, well, I mean, obviously he wasn't there for ten years, but for 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 the for that Blair. That Blair government, um, and the other one I would recommend would be um, William Hague's biography of uh, Pitt the Younger, which I just thought was a fa- fantastic read. I mean, obviously much more difficult to write about someone further back in history, but he manages to to bring uh, that prime minister uh, back to, back to life in quite an extraordinary way. 
And of course, you're both too modest, so I'm going to say it. Everybody should read your books too. Um, thank you both so much, uh, John Rental and uh, Sonia Purnell. That's all we've got time for. I'd like to thank not just Sonia and John, but also the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its continued generous support of this podcast. Now, the long list for the 2022 prize will be announced on the 13th of September with the shortlist revealed on the 10th of October, live from a special event at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. And the winner is announced on the 17th of November this year. Now, if you'd like to know more about the prize, you can visit the website or follow us on Twitter at, at BG Prize. Do join me next time for our very special 2022 Longlist episode. Bye-bye for now. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.